This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr. Andrew McGregor. Andrew is a senior lecturer in French studies at the University of Melbourne, and he joined me to delve into the life and cinematic legacy of revolutionary French New Wave filmmaker Jean-Luc Godard. Jean-Luc died at the age of 91 recently. We discussed the Nouvelle Vague movement that originated in the late 1950s and early 1960s in France and Jean-Luc Godard's prominent place within it. We talk about his innovative filmmaking techniques and the artistic genius that distinguished his work from others and transformed cinema forever. We also share our top five favourite Godard films for listeners to check out in their own time. Acme in Melbourne have announced a special Goodbye to Godard program, which runs from the 22nd of September to the 16th of October this year. Six early films from the director will be shown. But if you can't make it to the big screen, there are many ways that you can check out Jean-Luc Godard's films at home. Details are shared in this episode's podcast information section. I'm going to be chatting right now, in fact, with Dr. Andrew McGregor, who is a senior lecturer in French studies. He's also the convener of French studies and European studies based at the School of Languages and Linguistics at the University of Melbourne. And uh, Dr. Andrew McGregor has been on this program before a couple of times, at least, I think maybe two or three now. We've had some really, really fun chats in the past about all manner of things, including Jean-Luc Godard. We talked about his film Contempt or Le Mépris. We also talked about the film that had come out about Jean-Luc Godard, which was a little bit controversial and slightly polarising for some. And then we also had talked about the great work of Claude Chabrol, who was also a member of the French New Wave or the Nouvelle Vague movement. So I'm really excited to talk to Andrew about the great legacy of Jean-Luc Godard, who was really a revolutionary of his time and continued to be up to his death. He was such a prolific filmmaker, but also truly, truly inspiring and fresh to everyone who rediscovered him or discovered him across the years. So he unfortunately passed away last week at the age of 91. We are really, really certainly sad to see him go, but it does give us a great opportunity today to reflect on his work and his life. So I welcome onto the program once again, Andrew McGregor from the University of Melbourne. Hi there, Andrew, and thank you very much for coming back onto the program. Good morning, Amy, and thank you so much for having me back. It's an absolute pleasure, as always. You're absolutely right. It's a shame about the the occasion, but it is an excellent opportunity, as you mentioned, to talk about the the life and legacy of Jean-Luc Godard. Indeed. And it also reminds me of the other really sad moments we've had recently of people passing away, including Jean-Paul Belmondo, who passed away in September last year, who was one of the you know, recurring stars in Jean-Luc Godard's films. We also unfortunately saw Anna Karina pass away, who was an ex-wife of Jean-Luc Godard, but far more than that, she was his muse. She was a brilliant actress. So there's been a lot of recent deaths in this area of French cinema, but also a lot of people remarking that Jean-Luc Godard was essentially one of the last. He really did hang on quite a long time compared to the others who passed away, in some cases, many, many years ago. Uh, absolutely. I mean, that's that's right. It's, um, it is such a shame to have now lost touch with that era. Um, Jean-Luc Godard was such a key figure of the French New Wave era of the late 1950s and early 60s, or well into the 60s in Godard's case. I don't think in many respects he ever left the New Wave, to be honest. He was constantly making it right through to the end, as you mentioned. And really the only, the, the last one before um, Jean-Luc Godard was Agnès Varda, which was another mm. great, huge loss to the cinema in general and another French cultural icon uh, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago now, but um, likewise managed to make films and, be, and, and reflect on her career and her, pretty much her legacy as well um, um, in creating at least two feature-length films that featured mainly her own work as, um, as the main point of interest. Um, and that kind of aspect of, of self-reflection is so characteristic of people like Varda and, and Godard. It's really quite intriguing how they've managed to weave their own life into their work. And I think that's 
what makes them really the, the definitive auteur filmmakers. So essentially, uh, as, as was the thinking of the time, uh, certainly a theory put forward by uh, François Truffaut in the time of the, the French New Wave, the idea that the filmmaker was in fact the author of the work. It's a concept which is applicable to all sorts of different types of cinema. They were, I think they were arguably auteur before the New Wave. Someone like Jean Renoir, for example, was very much an auteur, investing heavily um, in his films and certainly leaving a very personal mark in his work. Um, but certainly that aspect of really discovering something about the creative process while you're actually watching the films, that was really their legacy. Both Varda and Godard really fall into that category. Um, yeah. making, making a film and actually kind of showing us how it's done and, and kind of reveling in the actual creative process and also the whole kind of meta aspect of what surrounds the film, including our role as spectators. That's what I think is really exciting for, for people who are thinking about cinema. The spectator yeah. was always front and centre in both cases. So true. It, it's like the way that he used so many different methods of making the audience aware that they are watching a construction, that this is, you know, a piece of art in a cinema and it's truly cinematic. You know, it's something that only you could do in the medium of film as well. It's, um, it, yeah, it feels like a revelation every time I watch a Jean-Luc Godard film and I did try and watch some over the weekend to refresh my memory, mainly just because I love watching them, not because I needed to remember yep. them. It made me realise, and I wondered if this is the same for you, Andrew, that when you watch a film that you think you know, like, for example, Alphaville for me, I'd watched that so many times, but I re-watched it again and I got so much more out of it again for the millionth time and I was like, how did I not notice that before? Do you keep getting, you know, new things, re-watching and constantly watching, you know, the Goddard films and have you had that moment with any, any particular films? <laughs> that's a great question, Amy, and I think that's a wonderful um, experience that you've just described and I can relate 110%. For me personally, I think that's the, the mark of a true masterwork when you can revisit a film that many times and discover something new and fresh. And also the way these films tend to resonate even in different eras. It's like beyond space and time, which is something that Godard was very aware of as well. This is, his concept of time was very fluid. And I think that that's really what's so remarkable that even, even a film going back to A Bout de Souffle, which I've just shown to a bunch of French cinema students at Melbourne Uni, just in the last few weeks, it's still so fresh, yeah. so fresh and alive. I've seen it, you know, I could probably recite every line of it, but it, mm. it's just, it's an experience. And I think that's probably what you experienced as well, just over the weekend. I can, I'm, I'm pleased to see you're still functioning after a weekend of binging on <laughs> Jean-Luc Godard. <laughs> it's a pretty heavy going experience. Yeah. Um, particularly if you've got a keen eye for detail, because the detail, I mean, the beauty of it really is in the detail. As you would know only too well, Amy, that each of his films is just so stacked full of references. Um, and it, you would think, you know, what a what a kind of a pretentious exercise this is. But I think it was really just a mark of of how much he was invested in the culture of the time. Not always in terms of embracing that culture, often extremely critical of it, but just referencing so many different writers and artists and other filmmakers. It's really just quite extraordinary. So I think, um, Amy, it, you could probably watch that film another 10 times and, and have a life-changing experience each and every time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I remember seeing it at the Melbourne International mm -hmm. Film Festival on the big screen and the, the flashing lights at the beginning, you see this really, because it's all black and white, it's this stark black backdrop with this white light and I don't know, I felt like I did have that revelatory moment. You know, this is the Alpha 60 machine kind of communicating. <laughs> and I don't know, like it, just every aesthetic element, but also the intellectual element, the philosophical element, as you say, the literary references that he's using. I mean, it does sound pretentious when you think of it through a 21st century lens. But as you say, it's not coming from a point of pretense. The thing that struck me when I was reading about Godard over the weekend was there was this one anecdote that relates back to his voracious appetite for reading and culture and consuming culture. And that was that he would essentially be the guy who goes to someone's house, 
picks up every book on their bookshelf and reads the first and last page of every book. And I just thought that was the funniest story, but it also just shows how hungry he was for ideas and to engage critically with them. And I wondered, could you share with us that approach that Jean-Luc Godard had? Because I know he started off his life as a young teenager, even writing articles for film magazines and journals. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's that's a really interesting, I think it's an interesting fact because it, it actually defines the beginning or the early career of most of those, um, at least the well, at, at least a, a good chunk of the uh, of the filmmakers from the New Wave era began their careers as film critics. So he did actually set out to become a writer, and it didn't work out for him. So it's one of those um, one of those cases where I think it's just one of those happy coincidences, a bit like the discovery of penicillin, where you just kind of fall into the right the right career after embarking on the wrong trajectory. But yes, yeah, so there was certainly writing involved. But I think interestingly too, for all of those filmmakers. They were film critics and they were very critical, particularly Truffaut, as we know, of the kind of traditional um, quality cinema, as it was referred to, or that tradition, the quality tradition of French filmmaking. They were very much against that kind of very um, stock standard linear kind of narrative approach, often adapting very famous works of literature. This was cinema at the time and the director was merely a technician, just simply adapting this you know, revered work for the screen. And they really did turn that on its head. And we're so thankful for that. Um, and the script really did become very much second place. Um, as you've probably read elsewhere, Amy, in, back to the example of Abu Tsufa, which was um, his first feature film, he was making it up as he went along, much to the dismay of the actors involved, particularly Gene Seberg, who worked with Otto Preminger um, and was, of course, an American, young American actress who thought that she'd really bombed out and um, managed to in to involve herself with a film that was going nowhere. Even Jean-Paul Belmondo had no idea what was going on. They were, Godard was feeding them lines as they were actually mm -hmm. acting the scene <laughs> and they wouldn't know what they were going to do the next day and if Godard didn't have any ideas, they would simply stop filming, etc. Just really quite, quite, quite remarkable. So I think mm. as, as you've managed to capture, Amy, I think the, the, the key with Godard is that, no, it wasn't an exercise in pretension because he really did this was his character. This is how he experienced culture. And I think it's so evident, even more so in his later films, which are, it, it must be said, are increasingly less accessible and yeah. increasingly obscure for the kind of lay person to pretty much get anything out of, to be honest. Um, he was not interested in commercial success. He was not interested even in critical success. He wouldn't bother turning up to the Oscars or to... Can to receive his awards, um, that was just not of interest to him. And he just was so in, so genuinely invested in what he was producing that there really was very little boundary between the work itself and his own life. And if that isn't the embodiment of an, of an auteur, I don't know what is. Quite a difficult character to engage with. You've, you've probably read anecdotes of people attempting to interview him. Famously, at the end of one of Agnès Varda's um, later films with um, the photographer Gier, she tried to go and visit Godard in Switzerland and had, an, had a, a meeting arranged with him. And, of course, in typical Godard style, he stood her up. <laughs> and that was very, very... It was a real heart-wrenching moment for Agnès Varda, yeah. also aware that she was getting on in years and really wanted to, to visit an old friend. But... He was just that kind of, a, it was such a Godard thing to do, a bit like his death we might talk about yes. as well. It was such a Godard thing to do. He's such an elusive character. And it's not, again, it's not just somebody playing games. It's just the, the way the man was. And I'm not really that sure if we'll ever see anyone quite as radical as Godard in the cinema ever again. No. It's also, as we've mentioned, a product of the time as well, that he's innovating in really difficult circumstances with barely any funding whatsoever. He's not sought filming permission from the city that he's in. And I did read those kind of anecdotes about um, Jean Seberg and how she was going to walk out, essentially. She just, you know, Raymond Cochetier, who was a photographer on the set of A Bout de Souf and lots of other great Godard films, 
he was recounting a little while ago that Goddard arrived in the morning with only a vague idea of what he would shoot that day. He had a school exercise book and he'd jot down some dialogue and copy it out on pieces of paper and hand them to the actors. When Seberg found out about this, she wanted to go back to Iowa and she essentially was convinced by Jean-Luc in a cafe for 15 minutes. He must have said something pretty compelling to her because she kept on going. But it's that approach that he's using of, you know, doing these tracking shots and they're in a trolley, you know. Like there's so many great ways that he managed the technical aspects of filmmaking and made it so immediate. But then, as we've already said, it's so well thought through. It seems like someone sat at their desk for days and months and years thinking these things out in really clear detail, but then it's made in such a kind of immediate way. Could you talk about the tension that exists there between, you know, this very kind of, I don't know, innovative and the French filmmaking context that he's working in or actually maybe pushing up against or changing essentially because he's not fitting into the way that things were done, but also the way that all of his films are coming across as so well thought through, so nuanced, so masterful. Absolutely. That's a, that's very well put, Amy. I think it, it's, it gets back to the, to the kind of character that we were describing before, a, a, a genuine radical. I think, you know, just, just listening to you talking about how he was going about filming, it, it just, it's like a kind of a guerrilla, guerrilla movement. And I think that's really, really typical. He was he was so had kind of this bizarre relationship with the, with the U.S. Um, beginning with a lot of admiration for the classic Hollywood um, filmmakers, you know Hitchcock and Howard Hawks, etc., were revered in almost a godlike way for for both Truffaut and um, and Godard. But certainly the politics, the Vietnam War, etc., coming into play later on, and that kind of cultural domination that he was extremely wary of, um, that also influenced him. And of course, at the same time, that that cultural domination from Hollywood was also influencing French cinema and the way that films were being made there. And a lot of partnerships, you know, between Paramount and um, whether it's Gourmand or UGC or other, um, you know, production houses, um, he he absolutely withdrew from that entire network. So how he got any of these later films done is is really quite remarkable. But just to go back to what you were saying, I, I remember reading somewhere about um, about this approach to to filmmaking, that he was attempting to to arrive at the definitive completely by chance. So he would literally throw elements together. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still thinking of Jean-Paul Belmondo and Jean Seberg. I don't know if you've seen a shot of um, them filming in the character Patricia's bedroom. I think it was a bedroom. Was it a hotel room? I think it was actually her bedroom. I think she lived there. But it was it was like a shoebox, and you had the camera cameraman. Um, there was one other person present, Godard and the two actors, practically around, around a bed as, and kind of like on top of each other practically. Yeah. Um, and two-thirds of the film actually occurs in that room. Mm. And I think that's a, real, that's a real kind of example of what was remarkable about that time. That was unthinkable just a few years prior. Technically, as you mentioned, filming with natural light or maybe one or two lamps at the most – um, and just letting it happen, letting the conversation happen, incorporating ideas from the actors. You know, he he described that film you might have read somewhere as a documentary on Jean-Paul Belmondo and Jean Seberg. There's that that really fascinating kind of wavering between the reality of what's happening on the on the film set and in the shoot while the film's being made and the narrative space of the film. It starts, it, it, and you've, you've mentioned a couple of examples already. Another one would be two or three things I know about her, yeah. where we discover the, the actress, I think it was um, Marina Vladi, at the very start, she introduces herself as the actress, as the person, <laughs> and then turns her head another way and is in, in the, the, in the role. So this kind of really Brechtian moment that Godard references, it, it, it prevents us from that kind of um, experience of the cinema that a lot of us sign up for when we pay our what, 20 bucks these days and go into the movie theatre, we want to kind of be lost in the experience. We want to be transported into the time and space of the film. But Godard kind of refuses that. Um, he, he makes us acutely aware of what's going on. The fact that we're watching a film, yes, that is an actress playing the role. And, you know, even in the middle of a scene, an, an actor will turn to the to the camera and say something about you know what she's doing 
here's me actually playing this role. And you would think this is a catastrophe. (laughs) By the Hollywood model, model, this would be an absolute catastrophe. You would cut that out. Yeah. But no, this is all part of that machinery. And I think I think that's that's that kind of radicalism is is really quite characteristic of Godard's work. In terms of working with others, I think uh, as I've mentioned, in terms of his character, you probably would have had. I mean, you, you get it doesn't take long, I guess, to get the impression that this fellow is really somewhat of a loner, and I mm. think that really does that does characterise him to a great extent. He kind of exiled himself to Switzerland. Um, he is kind of Franco-Swiss anyway. Um, but I think that kind of that that also really um, adds to <laughs> the mystique of the of the character in a way. He's kind of, he is extremely elusive, very kind of untouchable. And I think Richard Brody, who you probably read um, some of his, his stuff, he's yeah. for anyone who really is interested in in, in following up on Jean-Luc Godard, I, really his biographer is the best um, the best starting point and indeed end point. So Richard Brody writes for The New Yorker and he's a great film critic. He's written about a whole lot of different films and filmmakers as well, but it really is the definitive biography of Jean-Luc Godard. Everything is cinema. And that's that's a quote from, from Godard as well that he's borrowed as the title, and I think that really does sum things up, that ultimately Godard is really talking about images and the representation of images and the interpretation of those images as well. And we're actually doing that all the time is kind of what he wants to tell us. We're doing it constantly and kind of watching our own film unfold as we live our own life. (laughs) Various characters come and go. We're constantly questioning our own role in this. And he he saw this as really, you know, all of this was kind of gelled together and very impossible to separate in the end. So that's that's really in terms of his engagement with with the French industry. No, it was very much at arm's length as far as he was concerned. And also, I think it's fair to say too that he, he was, you know, a difficult character, um, and that's kind of endearing in a way, but quite difficult to work with, and very much wanting to maintain his um, solitude most of the time and um, and work in a very kind of individual manner. I must say, just just um, as we kind of, I'm edging towards um, towards his death, which is of course the reason for it, for this conversation. But it it does strike me he you know given what you were describing before, Amy, to just just the the you know even in films later films like the Image Book, which is essentially or, or even um, Histoire du Cinéma, so essentially histories or stories of cinema, the juxtaposition of of seemingly en- endless fragments of films, a bit like the reading that he that he did uh, when he went to visit people, as you mentioned earlier. You would think that, that if this is simply, you can imagine this being just a fraction of what's actually going on in his head at any given moment. And you wonder how on earth anyone can function <laughs> with that going on in their mind. And I think that's a, it's remarkable that, that Godard, I mean, lived to the age of 91, he um, managed to, to keep it together for that length of time. And I think that's that's a real credit to him. By that, I mean that you would think that a character like him, we've seen it. We've seen it before. Very deeply creative, amazing people who have real trouble functioning as a human mm-hmm. being, and are tortured, and you know, self-destructive. In Godard's case, he just inv- managed to to channel everything into his output. And as you mentioned, it went right through to the to the end. And um, we were we were talking before um, our chat today, Amy, about the the manner in which he died. So I don't know if you wanted to share that. I, I don't know if it was really picked up a lot by the, the the way that it was reported. I really found this in just one article on The Guardian, uh, which was quoting the French newspaper Liberation. They had interviewed people around Jean-Luc Godard, including his legal counsel, Patrick Jeanneret, and one kind of really, I guess, not surprising way or aspect of this death is that he died by voluntary assisted dying in Switzerland. He chose to die. He chose the date of his death. He chose the way he wanted to die. And he did it through that legal method in Switzerland. Interestingly, it's not available in France at the moment. And so that has brought up debates around that issue in France. Uh, But one thing was interesting to me that people had reflected that He was stricken with multiple incapacitating illnesses. That's according to Goddard's legal counsel. But the French newspaper Liberation had quoted an unnamed source close to the family who said, quote, 
He was not sick. He was simply exhausted. So he had made the decision to end it. It was his decision and it was important for him that it be known. So at the age of 91, I think he just had his birthday recently, he decided whether it was because of overwhelming health problems or not that he'd had enough. The fact that he had control over that in that way that you know, we've brought in here in Australia, in Victoria, being the first state to have a legal voluntary assisted dying. You know, it was really poignant to see that right till the end, he was still directing his own life. He still had complete control over how he died and when he died. And I thought it was quite fitting that that was how it was because, you know, he was that that person who was so individual minded, so stubborn in a great way, you know, I don't know. It just felt right. And I wondered, what did you think of that? You know, his decision and that he wanted everyone to know. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, excuse me, I totally agree. I mean, I think it's really quite extraordinary when I, when I heard about that, I, I wondered actually whether there was any diagnosis of, of a serious condition which may well have influenced things, but um, yes, it he certainly has opened. He smoked a lot, didn't he? So <laughs> that was compulsory. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. Ninety-one is did yeah. extremely well as far as that's concerned. But yes, absolutely. Um, you know, ended ended his life very much on his own terms. Um, and and yes, that does that does really open the debate, doesn't it, about um, about one's one's right to do that? And Switzerland, being the kind of country that it is. Um, it is it is legal there. It certainly isn't in France at the moment. And again, it just shows that um, kind of exception to the rule that, that Godard really is by having that um, kind of cross-border identity, which he's managed to to make very good use of over the years. He's managed to exile himself to Switzerland, was you know born and raised there in a very bourgeois family, interestingly enough, given his criticism of the, the middle class um, over the years, and also brought his life to an end very much on his own terms. And I I agree. I think that's um, well. This is kind of what I was hinting at before, but I guess I'm not game enough to say. You know, thank goodness he was 91. That's all mm. I can say when he made that decision, because as we know, tragically, um, unfortunately, that has happened many times in the past to immensely creative people at far too young an age. So yeah, I think uh, he's done us. He's certainly done us all a favour. Um, in that way, and um, very typical of him to want to make sure that that was known by all, all and sundry. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I was thinking the same thing when I heard that he died, uh, and I think it was actually on the same day that Uncle Jack Charles, the news about him had come through, and it was that mm. night. And mm. I just, I literally exclaimed. It was one of those moments where you find a reason to use that word to describe something. Where I just went, no, like. <laughs> How dare you die? Yeah, right. like, this is yeah. my hero. But then I did reflect on it and say, okay, well, he was 91 and it was his choice in the end and clearly it was within legal boundaries in Switzerland. So it yeah. would have been, you know, warranted. But, yeah, I know that a lot of people might have had that visceral reaction when they read it and went, no, 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 no. You know, you you kind of have those moments. I had it with Anna Karina as well because I <laughs> – Thankfully, saw her in Melbourne when she was yeah. by David Stratton, and that was Fantastic. one of the greatest moments of my life. Ah, that's wonderful. Yeah, I'm so lucky and glad I went. But did you have that moment when you heard about Jean-Luc Godard? <laughs> yeah, very much so, Amy. It it, it really did. Um, I mean, we <laughs> we've been overdosing lately on these kinds of um, uh, events. Of course, um, apparently, someone in the UK has recently passed away. I heard a rumor about that, and. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> That, yeah. that little that That's little fun. affair, and you know other obviously again and, and the way that um, people are, are referring to the Queen's passing in terms of you know this person this figurehead has been there my entire life. Mm. Um, we haven't had any other monarch during that time, and the same with Godard. I mean, certainly in my case, I'm pleased enough to say that Godard was pretty much well. Pretty much the hero. Yeah, I, I think yeah. that's a really good way of putting it. A real hero, even if you don't particularly like the, the films of Godard, you've got to admire the man mm. for his investment in what he did. He was fully committed right through to, you know, the bitter end, his tumultuous relationships with people, including Anna Karina. Um, and was certainly not bitter when I saw her talking either. Anyway. <laughs> okay. She was lovely and very funny. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, apparently that, that, there was a wonder that lasted five minutes, the two of them in the same room. Apparently it was a very hostile, very 
lively, shall we say, mm-hmm. um, meeting of two people. But anyway, um, yeah, look, I think I think that's that's yeah. He really was kind of this this benchmark of the absolute, not even the standard, that uh, the absolute, the ultimate, even. Yeah in this art form or in any art form, really. I think that degree of investment of his personal experience in his work, um, the fact that he withdrew completely from the film industry for almost a decade, you know, he went through his Maoist phase in the 60s and ended up joining this this kind of, um, uh, this collective, this filmmaking collective, Ziga Vertov. I mean, <laughs> people talk about this stuff, but he actually did it, you know, and he... He, he went through with this, he explored it and, you know, then would move on to something else. You know, he was game enough to to really put his money where his mouth was. He didn't sell out. He was extremely critical of, that's where, you know, Truffaut and, and Godard kind of fell out. Truffaut ended up in Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, for goodness sake. And um, Godard was very much against Spielberg and his kind of rewrite, what he thought was a rewriting of history in Schindler's List, etc. and his style of filmmaking that just really didn't allow any scope for people to reflect, to actually think and, and draw their own conclusions. Um, and I think that's a really interesting, it's an interesting take not only on Godard's filmmaking, but really the style that he's influenced across Europe, really, of giving the spectator, the viewer, enough to work with, but the kind of ambiguity that means you you have to draw your own conclusions. Doesn't suit every every audience member at all, but it it really does give you kind of like elements of a puzzle that really it's up to you as the individual viewer to work out. Um, so that influenced a whole lot of filmmakers at the time and has continued to influence um, filmmakers across the world. And I think that's really, really quite remarkable. Yeah, totally. Very well said, Andrew. Um, I wanted to bring in some some thoughts and observations about different films. But one of the quotes that struck me in that Brody book, which I was reading over the weekend, so we, we have similar taste in books, and it is such a great book. But, Amy, did you only read the first page and the last page? I read more than that, in fact. But <laughs> You've outdone Godard. Well done. <laughs> I, know, I know people who do do that, though, um, but I judge them for it. I won't judge Godard for that because I think he did it with all the books, so it's okay. And he probably didn't dog ear a book either. I'm, gonna, that's, I'm just going to put that out there. But one quote that struck me, and it seemed to embody his films when I was watching them again, was, at the cinema, we do not think we are thought – which is a quote, a very early quote in the 1950s that he wrote as a young person. And it really struck me, you know, when I was watching Alphaville, but also two or three things I know about her, Vivre sa vie, une femme est une femme, you know, breathless. Essentially, there are so many of these devices that represent that for me, that kind of transform the filmmaking experience that we've been reflecting on that makes it so different. And I I wanted to reflect on some of his techniques because those listening, there may be some who are very familiar with Godard, but there may be some who haven't yet seen his films and maybe are very intrigued and, you know, might want to go and find these films. There are a lot of really great things, but one of them in um, Alphaville that I noticed, and it goes throughout his films, was you have these moments of music and sound and street sound, and then you suddenly just have dead silence. And maybe you'll have a narrator come across, but other, sometimes it might just be complete silence with, you know, the moving image. And it's like this kind of very jolting, you know, moment of, oh, hang on, I'm still watching a movie. And the music might be very melodramatic and emotional and you're getting really into the music and then he's just like, sorry, I'm taking it away. And then in Alphaville you see neon signs flashing in the middle of scenes and the flashing lights, as I mentioned, the round white light, the beautiful stark black and white, almost film noir type style of film that he had, the clinical buildings that he had in that particular film. You know, everything was so thought through, but also the dialogue, you know, some of that dialogue, there's a lot of repetition of lines that's very effective in getting, you know, the message across. I wondered whether things that you noticed, motifs and other, you know, technical elements of Godard's filmmaking that you had really been admiring and feel is very specific 
to him, if not the broader French New Wave movement? Absolutely, Amy. That's that's really fascinating to, to hear you mention that, and and I I agree. I think it's a really it's it's very important to mention sound in the cinema because we consider it such a visual medium, and it is. Um, he was I, I mentioned images earlier, which was a bit um, you know a bit reductive ultimately because um, his work with sound is really quite extraordinary, and it shows you how much of our experience of film is linked with sound. And I remember, I think it was actually the Australian filmmaker, Fred Skepsi, who once said that 50% of the work and the experience of a film is sound. And I remember once um, going to a filmmaking course um, by the um, Australian Film and Television Radio School, which was fascinating, and they showed the same sequence with and without sound. And it was the first time, it would look like some kind of B-grade spaghetti western, the first time this scene was shown, this kind of fight scene. And then it was played with the sound and it was almost terrifying. <laughs> it shows just how much, because that is our natural experience of the world around us, how much what we're seeing is is kind of married with the sound that accompanies it. Accompanies it. And we, we tend to um, underestimate the, the, the impact of of sound and silence. And it is extremely confronting as you experienced, Amy, and, and Goddard does that very deliberately. He's capable of having this very grandiose, almost over the top music and just cutting it in its tracks. And we're left with silence. And of course, when we're left with silence, we're left with our own thoughts. <laughs> Sometimes we're left with a black screen, which is extremely confronting as well. So we're left to kind of process what's come before. And and again, as, as you mentioned, we, we are taken out of that of that that kind of delusional state, really. I mean, cinema is an illusion. It's one of the best that's out there. But it's this kind of delusion as well that we are somehow in the film, that we've become the main character or, you know, all this sound like a kind of new age social media thing there. But anyway, um, what um, what I'm getting at is this idea that he, he has the tools of the trade in his hands and he constantly uses them to remind us of the construction that we're watching. Now, you would think that that would completely destroy the appreciation of the film, but on the contrary, it really it makes it because it does jolt us, it forces us to, to work a bit harder, and that's why not everyone is on board for this stuff. I'll talk about another couple of examples in a moment, but I'll give you one kind of anecdote. You, might have, you may well have experienced this yourself, Amy, with some of the screenings of Godard's later works, even at um, places filled with very switched-on cinephiles, like at the Melbourne International Film Festival. Most of Godard, Godard's latest, later works would have emptied half of the room by the time the film was halfway through. It's not for everyone. It's almost uh, to the point, like something, like, something like the image book, for example, is an extremely difficult film to watch. There is no obvious narrative. There are no characters. It's a succession of images and sounds and Godard's voiceover, and you really don't know what to do with it, ultimately. Um, it's a film you'd have to go back to and invest in to really get something out of, and it's a very, let's face it, it's a very intellectual exercise. And it seems as though he was kind of making his films, whether it was deliberately more and more obscure, that may not have been the ultimate um, objective, but certainly freeing himself and moving away from narrative conventions or anything reassuring ultimately to the to the spectator. So just to get back to what you were asking me about before, I think the other, I'll just mention a couple of um, of, of of aspects of um, of Godard's work, which I think are really characteristic. One of them would be the the notion or just the the image even of text text on film, words on the screen. So whether it's often often in his title sequences, I mean, it's it's almost character, it's a bit like a Bond movie starting Godard's opening title sequences are constantly playing with words and colour. Um, during the 60s, it was often the, that, um, you know, red, white and blue reference there with various names appearing and letters changing, et cetera, changing colour, changing shape and moving. That, I think, is another really interesting connection between his, obviously, literary nature, his aspirations as a writer, and I think, and, and, and also drawing together the fact that, you know, the two are very much on a par, and that's what Truffaut was, was on about when he, when he came up with the, the, the whole kind of auteur image that writers and filmmakers are 
essentially on the same level of creativity and the two influence each other. Books get adapted. Films have so many, you know, in, in Godard's films and even in Truffaut's for that matter, you know, the classic image is, um, uh, you know, a, a couple in bed reading, presumably after, you know, God knows what they were up to, and smoking a cigarette, of course. Yes. That's a, that was also <laughs> compulsory. But, you know, that kind of image of, and I think that says a lot about French culture as well. I think that's a really, you know, it's a big film-going nation. The cinema industry is one of the, you know, one of the strongest in the world. It's a cultural reference in itself, just the phenomenon of reading. But, you know, just those those kind of connections are really quite remarkable. So text and image is really something. Histoire du cinéma is really very much built around that notion. Anyway, and the other one, I think it's, um, okay, it's a bit of a, a throwaway, I guess, but just to go back right to the start, I don't think one can underestimate the impact, even though it wasn't it wasn't a technique that was exclusive to Godard, but certainly a film like Breathless, A Bout Souffle, is, mm. is famous for its jump cuts. I'm glad and, you said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a characteristic. It's almost a cliche now because yeah. it's so familiar. But I think one needs to remember that it was so radical at the time to have, again, we've talked about various kinds of ways of taking the viewer out of the film viewing experience and out of the space of the film. Well, that was just... That was like a slap across the <laughs> across the face. Those jump cuts. I'm thinking of Gene Seberg in the car, just travelling around, and this very stilted kind of pretty banal conversation. And yet, these jump cuts were really, really adding another dimension to the whole experience of that of that moment. So it was again a reminder that you know this is simply this is film that we're experiencing. We're experiencing the cinema. Um, it was literally, it, it kind of made you jump and it didn't seem to have any other purpose other than to just be there to remind us of that. Truffaut and Agnès Varda used jump cuts more kind of narratively. You know, for example, when uh, Antoine Duanel discovered that his mother was having an affair in um, The 400 Blows, Les 400 Coups, when Antoine sees his mother, we see the same thing three times and it kind of really brings home the fact that this was a... a a huge moment in his life. This left quite an impression on this this young child. So that was kind of narratively justified. But in Godard's case, it's it was simply it was simply there and open for interpretation. And there've been many interpretations. And I think that's yeah. So that in terms of of legacy, that's that's kind of like a almost a cliche. But I think it's typical of the kinds of innovations that he was open to. And, and that went right through his career. He got right into video. He got into these really saturated images and that kind of juxtaposition or displacement of sound and image, which is very disturbing as a viewer. Um, he would play with that constantly. And interestingly enough, another characteristic, Amy, which has just come to mind, which is, I think, interesting in Godard's case, is the use of voiceover because voiceover, voiceover is, not convent, is not seen as... <laughs> It's seen as a pretty conservative tool in cinema, if anything, to be avoided at all costs. Um, one only needs to think of the example of the five or six different versions of the original Blade Runner to realise that um, voiceover is seen as a bit of a cop-out where you have to actually tell the story to the audience. And, you know, famously that was taken out and then it became more of an experience for the viewer, etc. But certainly I think with, with Godard, his, his voice is a constant in these films. Um, going right back to the 60s and onwards, right up to the image book, um, his last feature film from 2018. He's talking us through it in this almost kind of whispering voice. And he was you know, it's obviously sounding very elderly. But again, he, his presence is there and it's inescapable. We are, we are very much aware of the fact that we're watching a Godard film. And this is like a masterclass. It's a masterclass in cinema. And we're just so lucky, I think, to have had filmmakers like Godard and Agnès Varda, who, right, right to the end of their lives, managed to to take us all along for the ride. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, Andrew, we're going to hear a track, a short track, and then we're going to come back and give our top five Godard films for anyone who wants to jump into Godard and either doesn't know him or wants to explore further. We will be coming back with our recommendations to close out this conversation. Oh, that's why I've given you two minutes to think. Um, <laughs> so this is a track by Paul Mizraki, uh, the obviously composer of the piece. It featured in Alphaville 
Uh, it's called La Vie Inhumaine. And then we'll hear a track from A Boot de Souf by Marshall Salal after the interview as well. So this one is actually from the opening of the film. It's very dramatic and gives you a sense of this very dystopian world that we're entering. What a track that was by Paul Mizraki. It features in the film Alphaville by Jean-Luc Godard called La Vie Inhumaine. We are talking with Dr. Andrew McGregor from the University of Melbourne. He's a senior lecturer in French studies there. Andrew, I said before that track, we were going to give our top five Jean-Luc Godard films. Now, I've given you an out because I only just sprung this on you. So if you change your mind at a later date and you want to revise your list, you're welcome to, and everyone knows this is your draft list because I put you put you on the spot. But, yeah, I'll, I'll go with mine first. Um, sure. I think it'll be very predictable anyway for most people who've already heard me talk. But um, my top five are all his old films because I, I just love them so much. We've got his first ever film, Operation Beton, uh, which you can actually watch on YouTube. It's a very short, I think, 15, 16-minute film about industry. And it, you know, I never thought I would have liked a film like this, and I don't even really know why I did. Uh, I saw it at the Melbourne Cinematheque many years ago, but there's something about the aesthetics of the film, the voiceover, I don't know. I think you need to watch it for yourself. But I got that is my number one, but not, you know, this is in no particular order. Uh, then we've got Alphaville, of course, with Anna Karina featured in that film. Also Anna Karina featured in Vivre Sa Vie. Uh, Anna Karina featured in Une Femme et Une Femme. And then finally, I've chosen Masculin Femina because I loved that commentary on young people, French culture. But there are so many others I've not picked, which I think are also phenomenal and very, very different to those. But those are my kind of instant, like, just tugs at my heartstrings films. Over to you, Andrew. Fantastic. Thank you, Amy. And I think I'm I'm right in saying that I think we have completely different choices, which is wonderful in that I think it really shows the, the depth of his work that, uh, that, that stretches back so far. And I, I can't wait to check out uh, Operation Beton as well because... Apparently, he was working as a as a construction worker on this dam in Switzerland, and he just and he made this film about it. So, and apparently, it's stunningly beautiful, it is. <laughs> very it aesthetically truly amazing. Is. You never would have um, think it about a concrete, you know, works and <laughs> right. dam making. Exactly, it reminds me of um, Peppa Pig and Daddy Pig reading a book called The Joy of Concrete, and I think mm. this is. Um, <laughs> This looks like it's up there, but I'm sure um, without any irony intended whatsoever. Okay, so my top five are possibly predictable in some ways as well because I'm coming at this too from a slightly different angle. My number one is is Breathless, a bout de souffle, simply because it was my first. It's often one's first introduction to um, to Godard, and I'm also going to point out that including that um, even um, Godard's biographer, Richard Brody, had a life-changing experience watching Breathless when he was 17. So it's not just me. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, absolutely. No, but really a remarkable film for the era. Um, really extremely, um, yeah, technically, aesthetically, in terms of what it represented, the characters, it was just really quite extraordinary for the time. The next one along is Le Mépris, which is Contempt, and mm. that was his big big budget, big cinema scope um, production, which is, again, a real kind of landmark in cinema, a landmark for him. He never really made a film like it um, afterwards. And, again, it really it really plugged into, like, the, the, the zeitgeist, I guess, of the time. Brigitte Bardot was, um, you know, a cultural icon in her own right at the time. And just, again, the references to, to cinema and the whole filmmaking experience, the, the reference to, you know, problematic relationships, which Godard went on to, to live through himself, really quite remarkable. Um, the third one is, um, I apologise because it's um, a little bit, perhaps a little bit dry in that, um, or although having said that, I think quite a rich film, Histoire du Cinema, which is essentially a very, very long documentary on um, Godard's take on the history and stories of the cinema, again, with that kind of style of juxtaposition of text and image and excerpts from, from various films. And I think it's just fascinating to look at the whole domain of cinema through the eyes of a filmmaker like Godard. So that's another recommendation. He did put together a much shorter version. I think it, it originally was like a series of two hour, I think about four of them. 
so quite a lot to um, yeah. to absorb. But he then cut it down to 90 minutes, would you believe? So there is yeah. a 90-minute version available if you want the, the abridged version. Um, I happen to really like two or three things that I know about her. Um, that is a film that's essentially about the construction of the satellite cities around Paris, which has since become so problematic. You know, films like La Haine, of course, and all the... The, the banlieue cinema, the cinema of the suburbs, have really explored France's deep problems with the, the integration of its immigrants. It's, um, you know, a long, a long and complex history. But I think Godard was doing something then that was particularly characteristic of the true artist. He was, it was like, he was really at the avant-garde. He was, he foresaw a lot of this stuff well before it happened. And it's a film also that, that, um, that taps into a theme which struck him when he read an article about it. Um, it's essentially about bourgeois prostitution. So the kind of middle class that had settled into these um, into these satellite cities that were supposed to be thriving because of the industries nearby. Of course, eventually they all shut down and that's when it became really problematic. But the idea that, um, you know, otherwise normal, respectable women would prostitute themselves in order to maintain the lifestyle that they were aspiring to. And, of course, this went on to be his main criticism of capitalism, essentially saying that we're all kind of prostituting ourselves because we're all part of a capitalist system. So it's a, it's a recurring theme through a number of these um, of these films. I agree. That film is so excellent. I did re-watch that on the weekend too. And, yeah, <laughs> oh, it, cool. it does make you a little bit depressed, like that you're going, oh, my God, it's so real it's so relevant to now, you know, that it hasn't yeah. aged in that sense. No, and I love I love the, the image at the end with the, the consumerist products lined up on the grass that looks, yeah. looks they look exactly like those satellite cities where those buildings were constructed and they ended up becoming the kind of um, of prison and social disaster that, that Godard could, could obviously see coming from a mile off. And yeah, look, the, the, the last one on the list that you mentioned earlier too, um, we had to get a bit more Belmondo and Anna Karina in there. Um, Pierrot Le Fou is um, a film that's full of, full of colour, also um, a very playful film, something that, that um, again, really is, uh, is characteristic of Godard in his critique of, of modern society, particularly American society, American cultural imperialism. Full of colour, spectacularly so, and, yeah, just a, a bit of fun there to round out the top five, Amy. Mm. Oh, thank you. I love all your choices. <laughs> I, I really do. I wish I could have done a top ten because I think pretty much There's all more. of those would be in mine. So thank you for those. I, they're great suggestions. And if people want to check out Goddard's film, they can either find a DVD shop that sells them or rents them out. And I don't know there is one DVD shop in Richmond left that seems to be very well stocked with art house films. There's also your local library your university library, if you're part of that. You can also find it on iTunes. There's Alphaville on there. There's also Google Movies, which has some of his films on there as well. So there are some ways that you can access it. You could also buy the DVDs from Madman or Umbrella. They're the two Australian companies that have put out some of his films. And I know they're floating around on eBay and Amazon because I was recently doing a bit of browsing myself. Thank you so much, Andrew, for joining me today. It's just been so special to speak with you, another true fan and um, someone who deeply appreciates Jean-Luc Godard. Just so lovely to speak with you and hopefully we've uh, done him some justice in conveying his true brilliance to the rest of those listening, those who have already seen Godard and those who may choose to check out his work after this chat. Thank you so much, Amy. It's been an absolute pleasure as always. I've just been chatting with Dr. Andrew McGregor, Senior Lecturer in French Studies at the University of Melbourne, and we've just been talking about the cinematic legacy of Jean-Luc Godard, who passed away last week. He died, as we said, by voluntary assisted dying at the age of 91. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.